up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia here with Shawan Humes for episode 155 of the MMA Reigns podcast. We have myself back with uh, my partner, Shawan. First and foremost, as always, like we do every week, Shawan, why don't you let everybody know how you're doing? Oh, I'm good. Not busy as always, just running run around trying to help as many people as I can. And then I start a new job next Monday. So leaving one job Friday, going right over to my new job Monday. What's the new gig, man? Uh, it's, it's, I'm just going to be working for it. It's an office supply company. It's kind of got better hours. They actually have a 401k vacation time. My other company wasn't a bad company. I actually really liked working there, but we only had we had an office staff of two, which meant nobody could get sick. Nobody could have any time off. And nobody could come in late. And nobody could leave early just because of the nature of the work we were doing. So it'd be a little bit of a change. It'd still be a small office, but more people and kind of... Uh, uh, I guess my responsibilities will fit a little bit more and it'll give me a little bit more leeway as far as my time, which is, you know, time is pretty invaluable. You can't can't get enough of it. So hopefully it'll be a good change. Good, good. How are the girls? Uh, uh, good. Two of them just got back from AAU basketball practice. One of them had a track, had a track practice before and then went straight to a ball, summer ball practice. Um, oh, yeah, last week my daughter was first in shop Third and discus. So she's pretty good at the track throwing event. Good stuff. Good stuff. You're still breaking up a little bit. You sound a little better now. So let's leave it. Whatever you're doing right now, let's leave it how we got it. Gotcha. All right. So we have a lot to talk about today. Our two main topics are going to be um, fallout from UFC 248 and looking forward to UFC Brasilia, which is this weekend. Pretty big. Um, some, some important fights there. So I'm looking forward to covering that because there's a bunch of guys that I'm interested in on that car but before we do that as always let's jump into telling everybody where to find us so as always you can catch all of our content over at mmaratings.net where adam martin is covering most of the writing written written content excuse me swan and myself handling the podcast content there and you can always go and rate the fights let us know how excited you are for upcoming fights and what you thought of the action that just passed so go up there if you watch ufc 248 rate all the fights and let us know what you thought about the action from this past Saturday and tell us how excited you are for the fights coming up this weekend. You can catch us on Instagram and Twitter at MMARatings.net and on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Anchor, Google um, Podcasts, Apple iTunes, and on YouTube as well at MMA Ratings. We have this show every Tuesday and our professional wrestling podcast once a week, you know, depending on what big shows are, are on. So, Schwan, let's go ahead and jump into UFC 248. And we got to start with the main event where Israel Adesanya defeated Yoel Romero via decision. Uh, Schwan, you're a little bit too much movement. Yeah, so um, where Israel Adesanya defeated Yoel Romero via decision in what is widely being considered a less than stellar fight. It was very slow paced, multiple rounds where there were very few strikes thrown. And the main talking point out of this is who's the blame? You had two guys in a cage at once, two guys going in there expected to fight, two guys who've been saying a whole lot coming into this fight, and two guys that have kind of had a track record of some very exciting, high damage, high value fights. If that's the case, and you look at what happened this past Saturday, who do you believe is the blame? Do we have Adesanya or Romero to take most of the blame here? Well, the, the hard thing is... Before you, initially, before, you, before you start answering, can you um, straighten out your mic situation first? 
guys completely drop. Schwa? Hello? I can yeah, hear there you. you there you go. There you go. Now I can hear you. Go ahead and answer the question. Who's the blame for the main event of USC 248? Well, the real person to blame for, for this is the UFC matchmakers, if we're being honest. Everybody expected this fight to be super explosive, super violent, but the fact of the matter is, and we discussed this last week, I, we mentioned this, these guys are counterfighters. Yo Romero fights in spots with big moments of offense, flying knees, big right hands, leg, body kicks, whatever it is. He doesn't fight a continuous hard five rounds. He kind of navigates, controls distance, defends, figures out what you're doing, sets a trap, and springs it on you. Israel Adesanya is a little busier. He does things to draw out attacks, but then he counters it. He's not a guy who initiates who initiates exchanges. He's not a guy who just throws volume. He's not a guy who walks you down unless he's drawing out attacks where he feels comfortable countering you, impressing you. So when I mentioned this fight, I said this is going to look a lot more like Adesanya versus Silva than Adesanya versus Gastelum or Weidman versus Romero or Luke Rockhold versus Romero. In those fights, you had guys who were giving them providing clear opportunities for them to do the things they wanted to do. In the case of Gasolum, he forced Adesanya to have the fight because he wasn't going to take no for an answer. He didn't let, he didn't have the skills or the control to sit back and wait, so he forced Adesanya to get in the firefight. Robert Whitaker forced him to be more savage and offensive. In the case of Weidman and Rockhold, they they just they followed they followed the typical plan of Romero. They attacked, they attacked, had some success early. Romero started kidding their timing, figuring them out, then he lowered the boom on him. But in either case, the limitations of those fighters allowed each guy to exploit them with their style, which is a counter-based style. So you had two counter-fighters in a fight with each other, and the only thing that was going to generate action was if somebody took the lead, and neither one of these guys is known for taking the lead. So I blame the matchmakers, first of all, because this is a fight I predicted the way it was going to be weeks and months before. And secondly, if I had to really put it on somebody, I guess you have to put it on Romero, because he's the guy who doesn't have the belt. He's the one who's on his fourth, the third or fourth title shot, who's close to being put as a gatekeeper. He needs, to, he needs to make the most of his opportunity. I'm not saying fight stupid, because that, that doesn't fix anything either. But he's the guy who doesn't have the belt. Adesanya has leverage. As long as he keeps the belt, he gets another chance to showcase himself. He gets another, another time as a champion. And if he puts on an exciting fight, all this goes away. Romero, having misweight in other fights, miss, and also lost in his two biggest fights, He's really not in a position where he can afford to give away a title shot by not making some kind of surge to win the title. So if you're gonna, if you look at it from that point of view, it falls on Romero. The only other argument you can make is that Adesanya is the champion. He's the hottest guy out there. He talked a lot of stuff, and he didn't back any of it up. But the, in the order I give it, UFC matchmaking, Yo Romero, then Ezra Adesanya. All of them played a part in it. But the matchmaking, this, this was never going to be the kind. Of Kind of fight people expected it to be. I don't I understand why people are shocked. This is exactly what I said was going to happen. A slow-paced fight so because you have a guy. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, so let's talk about a couple of different things there because you mentioned that um, this is this is the type of fight that anyone thought it would would be. So first and foremost, from a from a stylistic standpoint, Adesanya made it clear that he was going to go out there and do one thing and put Yoel in a situation where he needed to start countering or where he needed to be more aggressive, but he did not. The fact that Romero didn't change his um, aggressiveness, didn't change his strategy at all in the situation where 
He is. You're right. He's on his fourth title fight, and if he didn't didn't win this, he's probably not going to get another one. The fact that he didn't push the pace and push the onus is is a little more of the blame. Should it fall on him for that matter? As far as his own career, yeah, the blame it falls on him because these opportunities are few and far between, and he's well. While he didn't waste the other two, he's seemingly wasted this one by not making it a point to push the issue. So from that aspect, it is on him because of the, of the nature of title shots in his career. The only reason I, I go slightly against that is because his game plan, his job isn't to make fights exciting. I tell this because I work with fighters, you work with fighters, we've had this conversation before. It's not your job to make the fight exciting. It's your job to do what it takes to unbalance your opponent, limit his the chances to damage you, and give you the best opportunity to win. The approach your Romero was doing gave him the best opportunity to win. Essentially, all he had to do was land two or three big, big strikes around, and he would have won the fight. Israel won the fight because he had the steady leg kicks. So there was something consistent that showed up in every single round that the judges could hang their hat on. If your Romero lands a big hook, a big knee, a big takedown, one or two every round, he wins the fight because he, he, he minimized Israel's ability to get his offense off. Even though Israel won, nobody thought that was an impressive win. The best, the best striker in MMA, as some people call him, didn't look like the best striker. He couldn't initiate anything. So Yo Romero was playing a game that put him in a position to win, but he didn't show the sense of urgency in those few spots that would have gotten him to win. He didn't have those moments of explosiveness. Kind of like a reverse Tyron Woodley. Tyron will sit moments and moments not do anything, but he makes sure that he has those big moments. At no point did, is, did Romero really have big standout moments that could truly separate him. What did you think about his uh, his strategy overall to not push um, Adesanya and not get into ex- those heavy exchanges where he could get countered and picked apart? Do you think that was a sound strategy, or looking back, would you have done something different? I, I think it was a good strategy because the simple fact of the matter is, and this and this was shown with, with uh, when he fought Anderson. If you're fairly durable, you've got some self control control and discipline, and you can navigate or, or manipulate distance and timing a little bit, Israel's going to have a hard time finding you. Israel wants guys who are going to come at him. He wants guys who are going to back straight up or guys who are going to come straight in. He doesn't want to have to go looking for a guy. And every time he's attempted to go looking for a guy, he's paid a price. He tried it against Silva. Silva landed some counters, some good shots with a hand. When he tried it against Romero, Romero just missed on a couple glancing big hooks, a glance, some glancing kicks. He didn't land the way he wanted to, but he was able to land well, well enough to scare Israel off. So from a strategic point of view, he did what was right. He minimized the opportunities Israel had to get his offense off. I mean, the only other fight that Israel looked worse in offensively and to a sense defensively was against Anderson Silva. He was missing strikes. He didn't know how to get his injuries set up. And when he fought Silva, the same thing happened. The only difference is Silva actually made an attempt to do some work and Romero just kept waiting. So let's talk about the Adesanya aspect of this. His um, his strategy basically worked because he got the decision victory there. Do you think, so the main conversation point coming out of this fight is whether or not his stock dropped. And we have a listener question in reference to that later on today too as well that I really want to get into. But before we do that, just answer the question in a you know, yes or no stance and maybe give us a couple of lines on why. Do you believe his stock dropped after this fight? Why or why not? Yeah, yes. Out of science, yes. It dropped It dropped tremendously. He's still the champion. They can't take that away from him. Dana White's still trying to cover his ass 
a little bit by saying that it was on Romero. But the fact of the matter is, he's made himself out to be a destroyer. He's made himself out to be light years ahead of everybody. And the fact of the matter is, a guy not being not willingly engaging him essentially shut him down as far as his efficiency, his accuracy, and his aggression. When have you ever seen him that hesitant? When have you ever seen him that inaccurate? When have you ever seen him that that gun shy to commit to anything? It's never really happened. Even against Anderson, he was more willing to fire off. So the, the, the idea that he's this unstoppable force and you can't do anything against him has essentially gone away because Romero is nobody's world-class technical striker. All he did was approach the problem from a strategically sound point of view. And essentially, he shut, he shut Israel Azani down. You take away the leg kicks, what did Adesanya do? I mean, if you take those away, he did enough to win the fight. But let me ask you the same question in this stance as well, too. If you look at Romero's last um, few fights, his last, especially his victories, he beats people up in a way that they're never the same. Robert Whitaker, Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman, Jacare Sosa, uh, Lyoto Machida, he retired Tim Kennedy, Brad Tavares. I mean, even Derek Brunson, you look down the list, and people that try to stand and bang with him usually get, not only do they get hurt, but they have career-altering um, results out on the back end. The fact that Asanya came out unscathed with a win, does that count more or does that mean more than his um, stock dropping? Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily think so. Um, I mean, it shows something, but it, 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 I guess it kind of shows something. I think Romero was also wary of, of Adesanya's counterpunching. But the thing about it is, people who watch Romero fight, the biggest thing is, if you, it's, it's, it's the same thing as Adesanya, it's just at a lesser stage. He takes whatever you have, and then he finds these big spots of offense. Adesanya draws stuff out of you, and then he takes it away from you immediately. Yo Romero lets you get some momentum. Yo Romero lets you find your rhythm. Yo Romero lets you lose your tools. And then he picks his spot to take that away and land something big. Since Adesanya was never consistently dominating or using his full array of weapons, he never had the opportunity to, to really expose himself. He wasn't going to expose himself. He knows how dangerous Romero is. He knows how powerful he is. So he was never going to expose himself. He was never going to put himself in any position where he was going to be severely countered by Romero. Once he realized what Romero was doing, he wasn't going to open himself up to it. One, he doesn't know how to initiate offense. Two, he was not taking any chances. Yo Romero, even at his age, is still a world-class athlete with world-class power. He was not going to serve himself up. He wasn't going to take any chances. So the only way the fight was going to happen is Yo Romero, the challenger, took these chances. So in, a, in an instance, he played it smart. And, but I've already known Adesanya is smart. I already know Adesanya's got poise and maturity. That's how he got to the point he is now. The thing is, he's made himself out to be a destroyer. You know, I just get the job done. I just finish these guys. I just punish these guys. And in this fight, against the toughest opponent he's faced, some would say, some would say Whitaker's a little bit tougher, but some would say that Romero is. He didn't look spectacular. He didn't look dangerous. He didn't look brave. He didn't look exciting. He, 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 looked, he looked a little skittish, and he, he took more of a controlled, safety-first approach to the fight. And that hurts from the guy he's told us he is. He didn't tell us he was safety-first. He came out as a destroyer. And he was not that against a guy who, who was fully capable of doing the same to him. So let's talk about one more aspect of this before we move on to the co-main event. And I want to um, compare what you saw on Saturday to what we are thinking um, Paulo Costa will bring to the table. He is definitely more aggressive. We saw his fight against Yoel Romero where they were just 
slugging it out for 15 minutes. Do you think that that plays into his advantage? Does he have a does he have confidence after watching this fight against your uh, excuse me against it is Adesanya, or will his aggression lead him down the wrong path quite like it did Robert Whitaker uh, when he fought Adesanya and got knocked out in the second round? Well, the thing about it is his Paul Acosta's whole thing is he feels he has the physicality and the athleticism and the power and the durability necessary to fight in a similar fashion to what Kelvin Gastelum done, did. I'm going to just force you to fire back, and I believe that I can take whatever you have longer than you can take whatever I have because the more volume you use, the more you sit down on your strikes, the more open you become to being countered. The most dangerous time to get countered is when you're striking. Adesanya is not going to be able to just dance and stay away from Costa because Costa is going to put that much pressure on him. He's going to force him to exchanges, and he feels, even though Adesanya is landing on me, I can take his shots. I believe he can't take mine. So his confidence isn't going to be risen, given anything by this fight because this fight isn't the nature of fight he has. Costa doesn't have that kind of poise. He's not going to sit back. He's not going to take any chances in how he's approaching the fight. He might fight more, more deliberate pressure, but his whole goal is to fight with pressure and force exchanges. Romero was essentially trying to sit back, get out of sight to show his hand so that he could explode with something big. Costa's going to be volume. He's going to be in his face. I don't, I don't necessarily know that he has the skills to stay at range and pop a jab and work long-distance long tools and work his way into spots to attack. So this fight couldn't have given him any confidence except... He saw maybe he saw fear in Adesanya's eyes, and he thinks that Adesanya can't handle power because if Adesanya really could handle the power, he would have pressed the issue with Romero and engaged in exchanges. So strategically, this does nothing for his confidence. But as far as Adesanya's unwillingness to really get down and dirty and exchange and muck it up, he's thinking this guy can't take it. This guy's physically fragile, and if I put enough pressure on him and I put these, this power on him, he will he will break. So from that regard, he has confidence. But as far as what he saw last night. From a technical manner, that's not his style, nor is it his mentality. So that that showed him nothing. It's no blueprint he can follow, or no blueprint that he would follow. So how do you think that fight plays out? Uh, I, I'm very concerned about Israel's durability. I really don't think he's nearly as durable as a lot of a lot of people assume. Because you're a striker, you instantly can handle punishment. I don't think that's the case. I think against a really big hitter. Israel Adesanya can't. I mean, he got hurt against Gaslam. He got stung a little bit by um, Anderson Silva, and I believe Costa is fully capable of knocking him out. I don't know that. I don't know that he has the poise and the discipline or the cardio to really go while he's constantly getting countered and raked to the body and punished. But I do believe he does have the physicality and the athleticism to put Adesanya away if he can get him into the spots he wants to. Good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Let's move on to the co-main event where we saw probably one of the best fights in recent memory uh, where Wally Zhang took a split decision victory over Ioana Janjacek. This is a fight where a lot of people are saying that, well, not a lot of people, there's um, a lot of voices claiming that Ioana won. From a scoring perspective, who did you have winning, uh, Zhang or Janjacek? Um, just from that point, I, I actually... Uh... I went with I went with Zhang. I thought Wiley's power was really the difference. Um, sure thing in in women's mixed martial arts, a lot of girls don't hit for power. They throw a lot of volume, but they don't really mark each other up. They don't really move each other back like noticeably. So when a judge sees someone land with power, like really see someone head snap back, 
it makes an impression on them. When you see someone swelling excessively, it makes an impression on you. Um, Joanna was probably more accurate, probably through a little bit more volume, but it took her five shots to have the same effect that it took Wiley to have with one or two. And I think that was the difference. They scored her shots a little bit more heavily because they thought she was doing more damage. Do you think with how close this fight was, it warrants an immediate rematch? It could. My concern for Joanna, excuse me, uh, for Miss J.J. I can't even say her names. J.J. Drake is... Yeah, just call her by her first name. It is the fact of the matter is I don't... She's been through a lot of really exhausting fights. Her first fight with Claudia Gadelia was very tough. The second fight, it wasn't a lot of punishment, but it's very high activity, very high contact. The fight with Valerie Letourneau was a back and forth kind of brawl. Even the fight with Carolina Kovacavich, even though it was one-sided, she had, had to fight at a very high pace. She put out a lot of volume, and that affects you too, even when you're winning. That's a lot of stress and pain on your joints. Same thing with Andrade. That's another long, five-round active fight. So she's been in all these fights with a lot of volume, taking a lot of punishment, fighting at a very high pace. Then you put in the Rose fight, the second fight. That's another five-round fight. Then you put in the fight, the first fight, Rose. She got wiped off the mat with that counter shot. You know, it's been a lot of mileage and a lot of shots taken and a lot of punishment and a lot of stress on her cardio and her physicality. I don't know that walking right back into another punishing fight is the best thing for her. Now, Wiley isn't the, sh- the puncher that Andrade made her out to be, but the fact is she is heavy-handed. She is looking to put maximum power on her shots. And Joanna's defense, while it's improved slightly, still ain't great. I don't know that I, – I, honestly, what I said on Twitter afterwards is I, I expect to see a steep decline in Joanna after this. I think she's later in her career. She's been fighting in these long five-round fights for the past three, four, five years. And I, I feel that at this stage, she's right on that peak. This might be her last great performance. In the next fight or two, I, I expect to see a decline. And, and she's not the greatest athlete in the first place. A lot of her success is her limp and her physicality, and her size, um, I, I do expect to see a drop-off in the next fight. And if she fights Wiley again, I really think that Wiley might get her out of there earlier, inside, inside of three rounds. So she's been in the UFC since 2014. And mm-hmm. in that time span, 11 of her fights have gone to distance, either be, being three rounds or five. If you look at the five-round fights, um, nine of those fights have gone the distance. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, eight. Eight, excuse me. Eight of her, eight of her eleven fights have gone the distance in the UFC. Have gone five rounds, and that's that is a lot of damage. It's a lot of damage, and and we had this discussion before. I was talking about a boxer, Antonio Margarito. He was a guy known as the Tijuana Tornado, and his thing was his volume how he could take punishment, how he could keep throwing volume, how he physically break guys. And same thing with Cain Velasquez. When you have that style, not only is it punishing in fights, for you to get into the shape and the mentality necessary to fight that way demands that you push yourself very hard in training beyond normal, no, normal, normal methods, beyond normal limits. So you're burning it at both ends. You're killing yourself in the training so you can fight in the, with the pace and the courage and the and the accuracy and the stamina in the fight. So not only is she going through these huge five-round wars, even if they're one-sided, she's throwing all this volume and she's still taking shots, she has to do that in her training so that she can perform in the fights in a manner. You can't just show up on fight night and, and throw that much volume if you hadn't been doing it all fight camp in the majority of your life. So her career is going to burn bright, but I feel it's going to be a little bit shortened because she's burning the candle at both ends. 
And I, I really do not believe that she's capable of fighting another fight like this. And I feel the next one she gets into, or the next time she faces a big puncher, there's there's a good chance they don't it doesn't go five rounds. I don't think I still don't think her chin's the greatest. I think the reason she just went five rounds isn't because Wiley isn't because her chin's gotten better. A, Wiley's not the puncher she's made out to be. And secondly, when Wiley gets in extended exchanges, instead of snapping with her shots, she starts cuffing you with them and she starts clubbing you with them. After the first two shots, they get kind of wide, they get kind of pushy. So they're not landing with the same snap. If she could throw from shot one to shot five with the same snap, Joanna doesn't make it out of the, in the five-round decision. But Wiley can't do that. And she doesn't have a consistent left hook, which is kryptonite for Joanna. So she's lacking the tools. She's lacking the technique. And then just from the actual distance, she's not good at managing distance. So if she's throwing from a distance, she's lunging, she's reaching, she's walking into jabs and, and front kicks and straight right hands, which kind of take the sting off her shots because there's, her shots are getting interrupted. Instead of delivering a smooth punch, she's getting jolted a little bit, which takes the heat off her shot, which allows Joanna to roll with it, get away from it, or even if it hits her, it doesn't carry that same power. So there's technical and strategical reasons why Wiley couldn't get the job done. But I don't think it had anything to do with Joanna's chin. I think her chin's still suspect, and I think if somebody bites down and can really fire off and exchange, like really fire off, they can get her out of there. I still believe that. I didn't see anything from the fight that tells me different. And the fact that Joanne is actually paying attention to defense a little bit on the inside tells me she knows her chin ain't there. She never used to pay attention. She just throw volume. Now she's trying to defend, tie up, trying to roll a little bit because she knows she can't take those kind of shots. Not continuously, not even singularly. Rose Namajunas hits her clean again, she's out of there. Andrade lands clean on her, she's out of there. So Brian Campbell over at, um, I can't think of the name of the show that he does with, Luke Thomas now. I can't think of the name of the show. But on Monday, they were talking about these two women fighting, and he recommended that Joanna should retire. Um, is that too drastic? Are we Should we be talking about her stepping away? Or has she taken so much damage over these last six years that maybe we're at a, we're at a point where she should call it a career? Well, the question becomes, how much money can she make? Are she really going to get a life-altering payday? Two, her fight style. Three, her training style. We just discussed that. She's burning it at both ends just to maintain it, just to stay at that point. As you get older, that gets even harder to do. And I don't necessarily know that she's got the time or the mentality to develop the defense that's going to give her the leeway she needs to navigate it. Against a lot of these girls, she's just outclasses them. But as far as being elite and challenging for a title, I mean, I don't know that she can beat Rose still. I, she hasn't been able, she hasn't been able to beat, beat Rose in two, two fights. She hasn't beat Wiley in one. There's really only, you know, two or three girls she could fight that would actually put her back in a title fight. And if she loses another title fight, that's that'll be four title fights she's lost. So now she's in a position where they can't keep pushing her because all she does is knock off potential contenders. And lastly, even if she wants to move up a weight class, she's already tried that. She lost to Val Valentina decisively. So she can't move up a weight class to challenge for a belt. She's already lost three title fights at her own weight, and she's taken a huge amount of punishment. I mean, there's not a lot of lucrative alternatives for her as far as making money and big name um, impression making fights. If you can think of any, please tell me. No, I definitely agree. I think that um, it's going. To, it'll be interesting to see what's next for her because she can still probably put away up, up and coming fighters, fighters who are green and so that that doesn't help the division though. Big win, but it doesn't. Like I wrote a piece about who she should fight next, and a recommendation I made was like someone like Angela Hill. 
you know, Angela Hill surging. She is on a five and two run and she's fought seven times in the last uh, year, six, six or seven times in the last year, something ridiculous like that. So that would be a real kind of measuring stick, kind of say, to say, where is Joanna at this point in her career? It'd be great for Angela. Angela wins that fight. She probably gets a title shot or she's right next to one. Yeah, if, especially with that run that she's been on lately. If Joanna wins it, that's not going to be enough to get her another title fight if she takes a yeah. fight in between. If she loses it, she's a no offense against Angela. Angela's a very good fighter. But if she loses it, people are going to – her image takes a hit and her value takes a hit because that's the kind of girl, in theory, she used to walk through. And now she's getting going through the if she goes through a decision with Angela Lee, Angela Hill, that makes it look suspect because she's known as a dominator, a girl who only gets extended by the elite, a girl who only loses to the elite. They would they, even though Angela's put on a great run, people still have her in a certain category mentally. Not saying it's true, but image matters. And if she struggles with Angela, that's a bad look for her. If she loses to Angela, uh, she's gonna drop three, four, five spots. And so it's it's a dangerous fight for her, and I don't know that she's willing to risk her ranking and potential paydays to give Angela Hill the rub, as we call it in pro wrestling. And another um, thing I wanted to point out there, too, as well, is Joanna's kind of in that position where Frankie Edgar has been for a long part of his career, since probably since losing the lightweight title and since he's dropped so many fights to Jose Aldo, where they're good enough to defeat the up-and-comers, but still not good enough to get to the back to the title. And we see how that's kind of been a detriment to him um, throughout his career and where he is kind of now. Like, he's at that point now where he's not going to get back to the belt anytime soon. I don't think he's ever going to get back to the title, in my, in my opinion. And he's getting, he's becoming a stepping stone for fighters like Brian Ortega or the, or the Korean Zombie. Yeah, I mean, that's what's basically happened. She's like, but she didn't have the option that she can't drop a weight class. She's too big. She can't move up unless she's going to start all the way from scratch. And while she could probably work her way up to a title fight, she was soundly defeated by the champion. It's it just, I'm not saying, I'm not saying she has to retire. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know in the UFC what there is for her as far as big money fights, big money opportunities, and realistic chances at getting that title belt. So one last question about this fight here. Where does it rank um, within your like all time, all time fights? Uh, I'd probably say it's maybe top top five. I, I haven't some of the fights since I haven't seen them in a while. It, you kind of you get the recency bias, so um, I I'd probably say definitely a, a top five just because of the, the the sustained intensity. It wasn't moments of explosiveness. It wasn't moments of excitement. It was pretty much from round one to round five constant exchanges, constant initiation of exchanges, and both people were flawed, were both elite, close enough to elite to make it exciting and technical, but also flawed enough that the fight could go the full five rounds. Nobody could afford to take their foot off the gas because each each fighter was limited either technically or strategically enough or physically to where they were forced to fight at that pace, otherwise the other person would overwhelm them. So the, the maintained intensity and the back-and-forth nature of the fight is what, what separated from most. There was no point where you really felt anybody took over a round. Somebody might have won a round, but at no point did they ever take it over. And pretty much every round could have went either way. Like, literally, we always say that, but literally every round could have went either way. And one more thing before we move on to this. Um, all those calls for Wiley to move up and face Valentina Shinchenko, I hope we put an end to that. The, the, fight, the fighter I saw on Saturday night gets wiped off the map by Valentina. Let, let's keep it straight. She couldn't avoid a punch to save her life. And, you're, and her power, while impressive, 
if Amanda Nunes isn't moving you back and Amanda Nunes isn't knocking you out, I'm not going to say Wiley can't knock her out, but it's going to be a hard, hard settle to convince me that she knocks Valentina out or she physically bullies Valentina. And a lot of Wiley's success is physicality, pressure, and power. She ain't bullying Valentina, and she damn sure ain't knocking her out. But Valentina lands a clean counter on her, counter, counter kick to the body, counter kick to the head. That, that's pretty much going to be all it is. So we need to hold off on that fight until Wiley kind of rounds out her game a little bit more or uh, pretty much just rounds out her game a little bit more. Right now, fighting Valentina is pretty much asking to lose your title and lose any chance you have of being a pound-for-pound fighter in the division. It's funny or because Valentina, she was actually on um, Ariel Hawani's uh, show yesterday, and she was talking on um, on TMZ as well, where she was saying that she doesn't think Wiley Zhang is prepared to face the upper echelon of fighters. And now that she and she almost made it seem like Ioana was her first taste of a upper echelon fighter, and I kind of I don't necessarily agree with that because. Wiley. People, people, people in Joanna's camp think the same. People in ATT believe this. I, I know for a fact they believe that maybe she was a little spoon-fed. She was a little guided into a position and given a favorable matchup in Andrade. But I mean, and what's interesting is Wiley's run to the title is much, has much more name value than Valentina's run as a champion. Wiley's been defeating oh. better names as in the in these last four fights than Joanna. Oh, excuse me. Wiley Zhang has been, has been fighting better names than Valentina has faced in, in their last four fights. I mean, name for name, Valentina has no space. To, since she's moved to 125, she hasn't fought anybody of the same caliber that Wiley has fought at 115. Oh, no, I, I would agree with that. But I would still say, by far, Valentina is probably the better athlete. I think she's a younger fighter. And, and I, I'm, I'm still going to say she's better. I understand exactly what you're saying. And on paper... That's 100% correct. But if we look at everything in a vacuum as far as the skill set, the physicality and the tools and the, and the, the one opponent they have shared, um, she went life or death with Joanna. And Joanna pretty much just got, uh, what do you call it, grown woman by Valentina. It's just a bad matchup. Your physicality, your pressure, facing a world-class counterpuncher who is not just super sharp with her shot, but at this weight class has world-class power. That's not a good matchup. It's just stylistically. I mean, if Wiley wins that fight, that's pretty much would be one of the biggest upsets ever, just based on the level of the, the level of skill and accomplishment of the opponent she's facing, and the, and the fact that it's such a bad matchup. Um, overall, we had a pretty good card on Saturday at UFC 240. I thought it was much better than it looked on paper. Who else stood out to you? I think uh, Benil Darius looked very good. He's on a four-fight win streak, not ranked at lightweight. That shows you just how deep that division really is. Uh, Neil Magny had to come from behind uh, in the first round to pick up a pretty solid win his first time back in the cage in, I think, two years. And then um, yeah. Sean O'Malley also looked, looked good as well. He was also coming back from a sus- uh, suspension, getting a first-round stoppage. Who do you think could have stood out on Saturday? I thought O'Malley did because a lot of guys get suspended or injured or whatever the reason they're out of the sport. And what ends up happening is they kind of they degrade, decline physically, which exposes their limitations of their actual skill set because you know they get a year and maybe they're they're not as fast or or they're just not as sharp and during that downtime you're off for two years yeah you can't make money but 
it's still the sport you want to come back to. You should be refining your craft. A lot of fighters don't. Um, Cynthia Calvillo was off for a period of time. She didn't come back any better. She had like one new trick to her whole thing. She was the same fighter as when she got suspended. And her performances showcase that. So the thing I was looking for, O'Malley, I already know he's a top-end athlete. But the fact is, in his division, there's lots of guys who are athletic. The question is, was he going to show some restraint? Was he going to show some more accuracy? Was he going to show some more poise and maturity in how he approached it? And he did. He didn't fight a named guy, but he fought an experienced, tough guy, and he made it look easy. Not just because of athleticism, but based off actual skill, improving his skill, and improving in his composure. I was, uh, I was very impressed with him. Uh, Darius looked good, but he did what he always does. Outsmarts guys, applies pressure, physically breaks them down with disciplined, educated pressure and attacks. The question, the problem he has isn't beating those kind of guys. It's when he has to face guys who have dynamic athleticism or dynamic power, who can lose two rounds in a row, land one shot, and turn the fight around. When he faces those guys, when he tends to come up short. When he faces guys on his athletic level or maybe slightly above his athletic level or not really elite, he, he always looks good. He always looks dominant. But when he faces the best of the best, that's when you start seeing the gap. That's where the separation appears. So, yeah, let's not have that happen. Uh, let's move on. We have round two coming up. Let's move on. Let's talk about uh, UFC Brasilia, which is this weekend. Now, we have an important main event where we have Kevin Lee and uh, Charles Oliveira fighting the lightweight division. And this is an important fight for both men. On one side, you have Lee who is trying to show he belongs among the elite. He wants to stay in that group and show that he is one of the best at, whether it be 155 or 170. And then on the other side, you have Charles Oliveira, who's on a six-fight win streak. A lot of people don't even realize that, but some of the names he's defeated during this win streak aren't the strongest. So you have two guys who are surging, and you have very limited spaces of relevancy at lightweight. Well, we're going to talk about uh, the fight between Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker that was just booked for May coming up this year. Kevin Lee is sitting in the top five. Charles Oliveira, I think, is at number 10. Let's talk about this stylistically first. Who do you see winning this fight and, and why? Uh, I'm going to say, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this because Kevin Lee tends to do it's just the most stupidest thing in the fight. But I'm, I'm going to have to say Kevin Lee. Um, I think he's, I don't know that he's a better athlete, but I think he's a more structured fighter. I think he, he has more potential moving forward. It's just a matter of applying his skill set and his abilities in the, in the right manner. That's been the biggest issue with him. A lot of fights he won just being a better guy against lower tier fighters. And then when he fought the better, gu the better guys, his lack of composure his lack of variety, his lack of discipline ended up costing him fights. Uh, training with Frost the Hobby, he's around other, he's around a guy who's, who's used to athleticism. And so now, instead of leaning on his athleticism, he's starting to develop a structured attack and he's using whatever athleticism he has to maximize the effects of those skill sets instead of just thinking he's going to bully someone or out wrestle somebody. Because, the, quite frankly, Kevin Lee's never been one of the best athletes in 155. His advantage is he's a, he's a big 155er, not that he's a super athletic 155er. And secondly, Kevin Lee's Kevin Lee's never been a good enough athlete to mask the fact that he's not great, hugely durable, and he's not super technical. So in, I'm, I'm hoping that fighting with working with a hobby has just made him a little bit more structured and a little bit more cleaner. And that's what I'm expecting against him. I don't think Oliveira's Oliveira. 
Lee's not very durable. Oliveira, to me, is very fragile. You just have to get him in certain spots and punish him. He's been stopped a lot. He's been physically bullied a lot. He's been worked over to decisions a lot. The biggest advantage he has is he's such a dynamic finisher, and he's so dynamic in spots. He can explode with a big series of strikes. He can explode and find a submission. But my, my, my take on him is if you can consistently attack him, being defensively responsibly, uh, responsible and offensively deliberate, you can outwork him and you can pick him apart and you can break him down because he looks for you to over-pursue and he looks for you to get lazy and he looks for you to get sloppy and then he finds the hole he needs to get that submission, get that takedown, get that big shot in. It's all in bursts. He doesn't consistently fight from one moment of the round to the end. He finds these spots, these lulls in the action where he takes over and wins. He essentially wins the fight in 30 seconds. He can be losing the fight for four minutes, 30 seconds, and then that 30-second, 15-second moment, he snatches something, he reverses something, unloads, and then, it, then, it's, then it's done. But if you can stay on him and kind of navigate his pressure and kind of push him back, he tends not to have very much except for heart and a willingness to fire, willingness to fight back, which, if you're disciplined, just is going to get him hurt. So who um, who is a victory more valuable for on Saturday? Is it for Lee, who's just trying? Lee talks a lot, so people are looking for reasons to, to detract from him and say that he's not an elite-level fighter. And then on the other side, you have Oliveira, who's rather, I don't want to say reserved, but he's just not as prominent of a name, even though he's been on a pretty good, solid run. I mean, he's been doing well. He just struggles against the best of the best. Who is looking for a fight? or excuse me, who's looking for a victory more. Uh, who has more to win and more to gain um, coming out of Saturday? Well, uh, I think Oliveira has more to gain. I, I want to say it's even, but I think Oliveira, because a lot of people have tagged Kevin Lee as a potential elite guy. Kevin Lee's actually gotten to a title fight. Even though it was an interim title fight, he's gotten to a title fight. Kevin Lee's actually been able to hold his own with the best of the best when he fought Tony Ferguson. It was a competitive fight, you know, it wasn't like just a one-sided, it wasn't a one-sided loss. He wasn't clearly dominated. When you see, when you've seen um, Charles Oliveira step up to the best guy he's faced, he's gotten beat, he's gotten handled pretty handily. He's been dominated, he's been beaten up. He, he's essentially been just worked over against Frank Yeager, Cub Swanson, Anthony Pettis, Donald Cerrone. They weren't really competitive fights. They had moments of danger and then he was basically eliminated. And that's, it, it kind of put a hard cap on how people see him. So if he wins this fight, as flawed a fighter as Lee has been strategically and technically, it's still over a guy who's considered one of the one of the better athletes and a guy who's been successful successful ex, in an extensive manner at the division. Even though Lee's not a really good name, big name, and Lee's not truly elite, it, it would show a step forward for um, Oliveira. But the fact of the matter is, neither one of these guys is considered right now a potential champion or a real potential contender. So either one, either wins, it changes the narrative a little bit because it, it's going to require them to show some growth from who they've been historically against the best level of competition, but it doesn't put anybody in that elite, elite aspect. Like right now, maybe they're high third-tier fighters. Whoever wins this fight becomes a low or middle-level middle, middle, tier, middle level second-tier fighter. It doesn't instantly push you into um, elite status because neither one of these guys has routinely beaten guys who were close to being elite. If you look at um, Charles Oliveira's wins, who, who, who are these guys he's beaten? Tamir, Jim Miller, Clay Guida, not exactly a murderer's row. Jared Gordon, good fighter, good talent, but not considered elite. 
who's Kevin Lee been losing? He lost to Ally Quinta. That's not a lead. The guys he beat up to Ally Quinta, Michael Kaseya, that's not a lead either. So both these guys are essentially third-tier fighters trying to see if they can take the step to becoming second-tier fighters and hopefully put themselves in a position where they're another two fights away from possibly becoming elite contenders. So based off of that alone, uh, who do you think wins on Saturday? I'll go with Kevin Lee. I mean, it's going to require him to be the best version of himself, but I really feel that now he's he's learning to fight. Like, he's learning. He knows he, he could fight. He's learning how to fight. A lot of his fights that were lost were just, just lack of strategic awareness and technical growth. Instead of throwing, I think now he's starting to put things together, like literally put things together. Instead of just wrestling, I can wrestle and grapple. I can strike to wrestle. I can grapple and strike. I think he, he's learning, learning a flow. I think he, he's learning pacing. I think he's learning how to apply pressure without leaning on his physicality and actually using his mind and his skills, which will keep him from being exposed. I, as good as Charles Oliveira has, has gotten recently, and as many wins he's been, he hasn't faced anybody who could, who could compete with him really athletically or a guy who could push back when he tries to impose his will or he tries to explode in these big moments. He could explode in a big moment, get, catch us up, finish Kevin Lee, but I think Kevin Lee has shown that against a better caliber of opponent that he can work through some adversity and you have to maintain a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of a certain pace to beat Kevin Lee. I don't think Charles Oliveira can fight at a certain pace through three, three rounds, much less five rounds, and I don't think exploding in spots is going to be enough to get, to get it done versus Kevin Lee. I think Kevin Lee's fought and beat better guys than Charles Oliveira. I think, once again, Charles Oliveira is going to hit his glass ceiling when he faces a guy with comparable athleticism and comparable skill set. Okay, awesome there, sir. So I want to talk about the fight that I'm probably most excited for and the fight that I was ridiculously excited when I saw it announced. We have Gilbert Burns fight, fighting against um, Damian Maya. We have an ADCC champion fighting against a bronze medalist uh, competitor as well. This is, a, this is a grappler's paradise right here for me. And uh, I am elated to watch this fight for a number of reasons just because i think these two guys are probably two of the two of the best notice i'm not saying the two best but two of the best grapplers in mma today so let's talk about this fight here man is this fight going to turn into a strikers battle or are we going to see them playing on on the ground in theory i mean you know the routine it is with mixed martial arts you have two high level strike grapplers it turns into a striking match you have two high level strikers at some point, it, it turns into some kind of sloppy shoot-boxing wrestling match. So, in theory, if this goes to trend, it should be a striker's battle. If I'm Gilbert Burns, I feel I'm a better offensive striker than Maya. I feel like I'm younger, physically more durable, and I'm much more athletic and explosive. I don't even know why I try to test Maya in, in the area that he's strongest in. I, I, get, I get he's a world-class grappler, too. I get driving home the point, because like Michael Irvin says, you... You attack a man's weaknesses to beat him. You attack his strengths to break him. And out-grappling Damian Maya would be a huge feather in his cap. But struggling with a 40-year-old Damian Maya isn't a good look for anybody. And somehow allowing Damian Maya to walk you down and submit you is even a worse look. Burns needs a big, big um, highlight, stamp it win. This is his chance to do it. And him doing anything except fighting a disciplined control fight on the feet and outclassing Maya 
is basically a malpractice as a fighter. You don't you, you don't attack people where they're strong at unless you're trying to prove a point. And this is a professional sport. This isn't personal. We don't need to prove points. We need to get wins, move in rankings, and get paid. So while I while I too would enjoy a grappling match, I can't imagine Gilbert Burns is foolish enough to just wantonly engage in it, especially early when Maya's fresh. Now after he beats him up a little bit on the feet, we might have something. But right away, while Maya's fresh, I mean nobody wants a fresh Maya on the ground. I don't care if you're world class. Just because you're world class, as you know, when you you're world class or a high level guy and you're facing another high level guy, it's fifty fifty either way because that guy's high level too. You don't have the room for error. You can't make the mistakes you make with a with a lower level guy. So is Burns willing to take those chances where he could be finished or punished for any mistake he makes in a way that he wouldn't be versus most guys? I, I hope not. I would expect better from him. Is this fight a, I don't want to say important fight in the welterweight division? Let's look and see where these two individuals are ranked real quick before I finish my question. Because, um, you know, Damian Maia is a multiple-time title challenger in, in, at welterweight and at 185. He's sitting at number five. Gilbert Burns is sitting at number 10. Uh, so this is kind of like what's going on with the lightweight fight that's main eventing this contest or this event. Because, let's see, where... Um, let's see, Kevin Lee is sitting at kinda, but, but we, yeah, at it, 13. You, you are right. Um the thing is, the lightweight, they have a lot of guys gunning. They have a lot of fresh blood. Gil- this is Gilbert Burns' chance to really... He beats Damian Maya. I- I'd essentially say have to say he's elite. There's a lot of guys who would be considered better than him, but they haven't fought very often. This is Burns' chance to really separate himself and insert himself into uh, the names at the division. Maya's only lost... Maya's lost two. Two champions, uh, one title... Cha- one, two champions and one title challenger in the past few years. Everybody else he's been mopping the floor with. So you beat him, beating him still means something because only the best of the best have beaten him and done so decisively. So Burns beats him. He's essentially put himself in the, in the, in the sweepstakes for a potential title fight. I guess if you really think, want to be crazy about it, he might have put himself in the sweepstakes for a potential Conor McGregor fight. Possibly. I doubt it, but possibly. Um, yeah, the, definitely the, sta- the, the, the stakes aren't that high at, um, at the lightweight fight. Neither one of those guys is – they're like two fights out from a title shot, two or three. If he beats Maya, he really might be in position to angle for a title shot, or at least be in talks. He'll at least be in the discussion. Thank you there, sir. Um, let's talk about, is there anything else on this card that really stands out to you? Um, I looked at it, and these two fights are probably what, what stand out the most to me. I think they have the most value overall. We have Renato Moicano also fighting Johnny Walker versus Nikita Krylov. That's a pretty interesting fight. Formiga facing Brandon Moreno. That's also pretty interesting to me as well, too. So is there anything else that stands out to you from this whole fight card on Saturday? Your girl, um, Randa Marcos, is also fighting. Yeah, she doesn't like me. Uh, that the, 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 the Moreno fight and Formiga fight is uh, is interesting because that, given how things went with uh, Joe B and uh, I can't pronounce his opponent's names, but how the fight went for him, I think there's still some opportunity in the... Uh, in the light, in the light, in the, excuse me, I can't even talk today, in the flyweight division. You know, it, they, it's on its last legs, but whoever wins this fight might be in line to get a title fight after, after, the, after the rematch. They'll probably be the best, next best fight. That might be the last fight in the fly, flyweight division. But whoever wins this fight puts themselves in line for a title shot, or at least in position for it. Let's talk about 
two interesting fight announcements that were brought out today. Um, the first one was, I mentioned earlier, Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker that is looking at being booked for May. And this is a big fight to me because you got Poirier, who's a former interim champion, um, fighting against Hooker, who is coming off that big Paul Felder fight, but doesn't necessarily have any super big wins on his uh, resume. So what are your thoughts about this fight here? And who um, do you, would you see just an early thought about who would be coming out uh, as, as a victor? I'm just going to have to say Dustin Poirier is probably going to win this fight. Not because Hooker is not a good fighter, but the fact of the matter is Hooker has been in some very punishing fights in the last couple fights he's been in for one. Two, this fight is going to be, what, 10, 12 weeks after his fight with Paul Felder, which was also a back-and-forth fight where there were some concerns that he had some serious injuries done to him in this fight. Um, Poirier has been off since the... The Mega Medoff fight, I cannot talk today. And that was, what, six, seven months ago? He's had nothing yeah, but time to rest, rest, recover, um, reset his mind, scope out the, the landscape, and work on his craft. He's just been focused on getting better and working his way back up to the title shot. Poker has been going life and death trying to, to, trying to prove himself a, a quality, quality enough opponent to get an elite guy in the cage. So now he's getting an elite guy right after one of the most punishing fights he's had in his career. Um, I think Dustin Poirier is a better athlete. I think Dustin Poirier is a better overall striker. I don't know that he's a better grappler or even a better wrestler, but given the guys he's fought and the way that Dan Hooker chooses to fight, it'd be a really big upset for Dan Hooker to win this fight. I just think he's outclassed in seasoning. I think he's outclassed in experience. I think he's outclassed in talent, and I think he's outclassed in skill level. I, I just don't know that he has the horsepower or or the all-round skills necessary to beat someone of poor A's caliber. The second fight that I want to hear you talk about, that this one is not, neither one of these fights have been 100, 110% announced, but Sipe uh, Miocic is talking about he may be ready to come back to fight this summer. You know, he's been out ever since winning the title back because he's been having issues with his eyes. And Daniel Cormier seemed kind of excited about that today. He's looking at that being his retirement fight, a trilogy bout for the heavyweight um, title. What are your thoughts about that? Is that the right way to go for Cormier at this point in time to kind of wait for Stipe to come back and have that trilogy fight and go out on, on that note? And if so, how do you see this fight playing out the third time around? Um, I tend to think that the Cormier starting around. He's he's already losing a step. He's not nearly as durable as he used to be. He's not nearly able to dominate or use his wrestling in the manner that he used to be before. So I I I really feel that Daniel's on on a decline, and I I don't know that he's really capable of winning a fight against an elite opponent anymore. I think he's. Setting up for his last hurrah. I think he's already ready for his career moving forward, and he just wants to give one last shot at possibly regaining that belt. Um, that last fight showed some concerns to me just because he that fight was competitive because Stipe fought an extremely stupid fight. At no point did Stipe attack the body, even though Daniel's historically been vulnerable to the body. And the minute Stipe attacked the body, the fight was over. 
And on Daniel's side, he didn't really use his wrestling. He didn't use it as a threat. He didn't use it to gain control. He didn't use it to slow the pace. He didn't use it to exhaust Stipe. He kind of just engaged him in a really sloppy, wild boxing slash kickboxing fight. And that isn't. And that's not a big. That's not a good way to take advantage of the experience, in the uh, the experience he has and the seasoning he has as a fighter and a wrestler. So um, it seems like it seems like Daniel doesn't have a whole lot left. And whether win or lose, it's probably the best time for him to get out because he just either can't put his body through the things necessary to be an elite fighter anymore, or he just won't put himself through the things necessary to be an elite fighter anymore. I would expect to see the best version of him. If he knows he's going to retire either way, he's got nothing to hold back. So in that instance, he'd be very dangerous for Stipe, but just the way he's been fighting hasn't been very smart to me, hasn't been very defensively responsible. And, and really hasn't been very inefficient, efficient. And when you're losing steps athletically, you can't afford to be any of those things, much less all three. Interesting there, sir. Um, I think those are two pretty big fights that have been announced, and or not necessarily announced, excuse me, but two big fights that are being talked about. Uh, and I think that they help really kind of move both divisions forward. There aren't, other than the uh, title fight at USC 249 between Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov, there aren't too many big, big fights that are coming out of the UFC right now. So I think that this is this will help kind of drive those conversations, especially with um, International Fight Week coming up in July. I um, wanted to segue from here into two questions that we got from readers this week, and I'm going to take the first one. This question came in from Energy Donk on Twitter. And he asked, this is in reference to Israel Adesanya, he asked, why doesn't the MMA media talk more about the racial aspects of, com- of the conversation about why Adesanya's stock has dropped? And I think that this is an important conversation because it's not it's, it's ne- not necessarily being touched on. I haven't heard it being touched on. And I think the reason why is because there, A, there aren't that many people of color that work within MMA media. I mean, it is what it is. It's mostly white men with some some women um, included in there, depending upon the outlet. And I don't think that conversation is being broached because people don't see it as prevalently. But when, yes, Adesanya Romero was not an exciting fight in any way, shape, or form. It was a strategically based fight that happens when styles are um, kind of booked that way. Now, in this situation, it just happened to be two men of color who were in there um, f- fighting? You have a uh, you have Adesanya, who's from I think Australia, and and but um, I think his family is Nigerian born. And then you have uh, Romero, who is a uh, Cuban man. So you don't see the conversation being as vehemently oh, it's, it's fighter A's fight um, problem or it's fighter A's fault that the fight didn't go the way everybody wanted it to go. But you do still see some rumblings about. Has Adesanya's stock drop? Has 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 a stock drop? Me personally, this is very similar to what happened when Tyron Woodley fought Stephen Thompson the, the second time. Everyone was talking about Tyron Woodley's stock dropping, but no one gave Stephen Thompson equal credit for what was not a great fight. I mean, that's Stephen Thompson's style. He goes from that fight to a less than stellar fight with Daniel Darren Till that was almost worse. And the same thing, no one talked about anyone's um, stock falling from that fight for Till or Thompson. Till actually went to a title fight from there. You've seen the same thing happen to Demetrius Johnson. You've seen it happen to, um, who else? Uh, This has happened to like Rashad Evans. 
You've seen it happen to uh, so many other uh, Kamara Usman after he fought and he said that he's only using like 30% of his skill, whatever, especially with Data White's response. You see the the anger and you see the vitriol come out of him and a lot of the fan base fall, um, follows in the same way. Like I said, you don't see that type of uh, response when you have Stephen Thompson in the cage or Darren Till having a less than stellar fight. You didn't see that type of response with Valentina Shevchenko when she fought Liz Carmouche and Liz wasn't really like, that fight wasn't exciting. A lot of people put the blame on Liz. She ended up getting cut. So you don't see that type of, of conversation talking about someone like a Caitlin Chukagian who doesn't put on the most uh, exciting fights, but she goes out there and she looks like she's doing something, looks like, like she's active. So there is a racial component that comes into these conversations when we're talking about fighters stock falling over something as trivial as this, in my opinion. I get it. People are upset that they pay money to, to see a fight that they thought was going to be a bloodbath. But at the same time, they have to recognize that these guys are their businessmen, athletes, and their prize fighters. They're trying to do the best that they can for themselves to put, keep themselves in a position to remain relevant, remain um, financially uh, viable. Going out there and trying to stand in the middle of octagon with, with Yorel Romero is a one-way trip to the hospital. And I don't blame Adesanya for not taking that uh, stance. Yeah, I mean, can't fault it all. I, 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 I have to say, I do think there's always some of, somewhat of a component in that. Um, you know, it, and you can't deny that. But as, and I, and the only thing I'll ever say is this: this isn't a real sport. It's not a real sport in the way that NFL is, or the NBA is, or any other sport is, because in those sports, there's a, there's a process of ascension. In this sport, you beat a big name, all of a sudden you're, you're in for a title fight. Even if that big name is a 15th ranked guy in other sports, you can't skip around just because you beat the Dallas Cowboys in week in week 13 doesn't mean you get a title fight. Doesn't mean you get a Super Bowl just because you beat the Patriots in week two doesn't mean you get to the Super Bowl. You have to go through the whole gauntlet and beat and beat people in an ascending order for you to have a chance to compete for a championship. In MMA, it's not that it's entertainment. If you're not pleasing the fans. And I know there's a bias in there, but if you're not pleasing the fans, you're, you're not going to have much leeway. You're not going to get many opportunities. You're not going to have much sway with the company. And, and that's the way combat sports are because they're dependent on interest in individual fighters. Team sports are different. People buy into the team. Fight sports, you buy into the fighter, the matchup. So if it's an exciting matchup or it's got a name in it, people will come see it. If it's a matchup but it doesn't have it, people won't. So you have to have the fans feel a certain kind of way about you to generate interest. The only thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say about this is you can have fans hate you and still make money. I mean, whether they love you or hate you, as long as there is a strong reaction, guess what? You can still get title shots. You can still get money. You can still be a main event fighter. They just have to have a strong reaction to you. Now, we might not like the strong reaction, but all you got to do is get a strong reaction and you're, you're basically good as a fighter. All right, sir. So there's one other question that is on our docket today. This is from MTF the third on Twitter as well. And this is a reference to open scoring. And I want to hear your thoughts on this one. And his question is, when um, open scoring expose corners and teams who don't have alternate strategies to implement if they found out that, that their A plan, that, that, that their A plan wasn't resonating with the judges. 
So would well, they would they get would, would they get exposed if open scoring comes in, in into play? Well, the only thing, yes and no, because one, you're gonna say, okay, this person's losing a fight and they're still trying to, they're still spamming takedowns that aren't working. They're still picking shots away and they're running away. So you was that would be the obvious thing. But the fact of the matter is, to a certain degree, a camp should know their fighter, and some fighters really their best bet of winning a fight is to do what they're doing and not go with the tide of go with the title with the mat the fight is saying if you're not a big puncher and you're down by a couple rounds what is you selling out and going all out punching going to do except for the most part get you knocked out you don't hit hard enough to, to get the stoppage and most likely you're going to walk into a big shot yourself secondly whoever's winning the fight if they know they're up their whole approach is going to change too now because now they know they're winning they're not taking any chances they're going to try and play safe they're going to apply try and play keep away they're going to Scores and takedowns to win rounds because they know they're up. Once it, once you win two rounds, once you win a, once you once you win two rounds, you essentially won the fight. And a three round fight, even in a five round fight, once you've won two rounds, all you have to do is not lose another one, and you're essentially good. So, will it expose them? Yeah, but the way the fighters cancel be exposed is just by the fact that they don't have game plans or strategies that answer the questions posed by their opponent. I don't have to see open scoring to know that a guy doesn't have good defense or the guy doesn't know how to transition from striking to wrestling or a guy doesn't know how to work off his back. I don't, the result of the fight doesn't change whether the camp is limited or not very good at all. How the fight goes, the direction the fights go, the amount of punishment someone takes and their inability to be effective offensively tells me that a camp's incompetent. You could have an, incom- you, you could have an incompetent camp and they still have fighters who are win- winning based off of what the fighter does as an athlete. That doesn't mean the camp's any good. The only thing the scoring might do is highlight the fact that they don't have any versatility as far as what they're teaching or the skill sets they're building in fighters. But it wouldn't it wouldn't convince me of their incompetence any more than anything else because I, I don't have a high opinion of them as it stands right now. There you have it, sir. I appreciate your response there. Um, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on this week? Uh, trying to get some interviews. Um, I'm going to be doing my Daredevil piece. that should be coming up. And then, of course, the Black Widow. I'm trying to, I guess when it comes to the actual fight, covering the fighters, I'm trying to always try to find an interesting angle to the fights. And so many of the fights are covered in, in so many matters, it's really hard to find a good angle outside of judging issues or tight scores. But I'm just trying to find something that uh, really kind of speaks to me. The main thing I think I'm going to stick with is addressing some of the issues I, f- I find in camps and how they're preparing fighters and, and how, they're, how they're coaching fighters in these fights. I still feel like there's a big gap between, between the, the fighters' best interests, it, it, technically and strategically, and what the camps are doing. And I just li- like to highlight that. Not because I don't think those guys should get paid, not because I'm hating on them, but the fact of the matter is you're supposed to help create and direct the best fighter, teach them how to win, teach them how to get home safely, and teach them how to extend his career. And I see a lot of fighters fighting in a manner that's not sustainable, not technically, not strategically, not physically. And I think that's a concern for people who don't make that much money, but then are spending a large majority of it paying for hotel rooms, training sessions, and everything else for these coaches who aren't really doing anything to make them any better. And in some cases, they're making them worse. All right there, sir. Um, where can everybody find our podcast? Let them know that. 
Uh, you can find us on FM Anchor. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Spotify. I want to say we're on, is it on Apple Music too? Apple? I do not know about that last one. But those three, you can definitely find us on. Um, like I said, we appreciate the support and we will, please feel free to like and share. And if you have any questions about the show or comments, we welcome discussion at any and all times. Feel free to contact me or Raphael on Twitter, and we would love to talk a sport with you. And we look forward to being able to explain our points or defend our points if you disagree with them. Awesome, sir. Thank you that for the, thank you for all of that. Thank you for all of you do. And we will be back next week to talk more about the world of mixed martial arts. Thank you, sir. You have a good evening. You too, sir. Bye.